So there was this early church father named St. Jerome. He lived in the fourth century, a few hundred years after Jesus and John. And in one of his writings, he talks about the season of John's life where he lived in Ephesus as an old man. Eventually, he became so old and weak that he could barely talk. But remember, all the other disciples were long gone by then. John was the only one left who had been with Jesus. So naturally, everyone wanted to hear what he had to say. St. Jerome writes that John's disciples would carry him into the church and the crowd would go silent. He would muster up all the strength he had and would utter the same words every time. My dear children, he would say, love one another. According to Jerome, people eventually started getting frustrated that he would always repeat the same thing. When they asked him why he would always just repeat the same thing, he replied, because it is the precept of the Lord, and if you comply with it, you do enough. I love that. I picture everyone in the crowd going, well, we, we already know that one, John. Give us something new. And John just simply replying, yeah, we know it, but if we really knew it, if we really got it, if we really practice it, we wouldn't need anything else. Translation, the Christian walk is one of constantly growing in love. That's it, that's the goal. It's a journey that always has more room for improvement, no matter how old you are or how long you've been at it. Even old man John was well aware that it was still his mission to continue growing in love. To stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. Today's story is sign number six and maybe the strangest healing story in all of Scripture. Apostle stares at the young scribe. They've been at this for some time now, and he wonders if the man is able to see it yet. Not the signs. Sure, they are why the scribe is here, to record the signs of Jesus Christ. But the signs are pointing to something, and that is what John wants the scribe to understand. John could have done this on his own. He didn't necessarily need a scribe. But why miss out on that opportunity? He wanted to pass on the lessons he learned as a young man one last time. One more disciple. He had learned that from the rabbi. And he will never forget it. The great joy in life is not in succeeding. It is in helping others succeed. Rabbi and his disciples stroll through the streets of Jerusalem. The sun warms John and he begins to feel like the world makes sense. They have begun to grasp the mission of Jesus, or so John believes. Rabbi's questions didn't throw him off as much anymore. John can usually work out the answers, or at least understand them. Each day brings a new chance to help Rabbi bring about his kingdom. John is beginning to like the chaos and strangeness that usually follows. As the men make their way along, John notices a man in the distance keeping to himself. He sits with his back to a wall, legs folded underneath him, holding a bowl. John recognizes him, a blind beggar, one of the many that line the streets of God's city. 
Most of the people pass him by with mild indifference, not seeming to mind his presence. He keeps to himself, respects others, and so people take care of him. They feel the gravitational pull of Rabbi moving toward the blind man. The others move in response, familiar with the whims of their teacher. They've learned not to fight it. John decides to take the opportunity to ask a question that has been on his mind during their many travels. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Rabbi stops. He looks around at the people walking. He slowly turns to face the group. He looks straight at John, a mixture of disappointment and generosity. John can feel the confidence he felt earlier wither. His heart freezes, his gut tightens. He still lacks something. He still needs to learn. Just when he thought he had it figured out, Rabbi stared, lets him know that he's as far from the truth as he was at the beginning. But John notices Rabbi has started moving toward the blind man again. John can sense that they are about to see another sign. Since the beginning, humans have been trying to reconcile why bad things happen on this earth. And the basic assumption is that it was caused by our own mistakes. And there's a lot of truth to this that everyone would agree with. I mean, if you murder someone, there is and should be consequences. So a lot of the pain on this earth is caused by people making bad decisions. Easy enough. But the problems begin when we take that logic and try to make it into some sort of formula. Oh, okay, if bad things happen because people make mistakes, that means this person is in this predicament they're in because of something they did. Logical, sure, but to create a one-to-one -one correlation like the disciples just tried to do is a very elementary way of understanding the world. Jesus, as always, is up to something more, constantly pushing us to see the bigger picture. He's moved past this conditional mindset where everything bad that happens can be explained by someone else's mistakes. He's operating in a whole different realm, a bigger space, one that the disciples can't quite wrap their minds around yet. Rabbi makes his way over to the beggar. He pauses a few steps from him and looks off into the distance, in the direction of the temple. For a moment the city falls quiet and John and the others are alone with the rabbi. It wasn't this man or his parents. John stares at the rabbi in amazement. What does he mean it wasn't the man or his parents? That goes against every teaching the Jewish leaders have given. There is no death without sin. There is no suffering without iniquity. That's what they tell us. How can a rabbi refute the great teachers? John waits for Rabbi to elaborate. Surely he will tell us more that so we can understand. He must have some knowledge of the law that we don't. I need more. I need to understand. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, Rabbi says, still looking at the horizon. What does that mean? John stares blankly at the Rabbi. The others, uncomfortable, take a step back, giving John and Rabbi some space. John doesn't know what to say. Right. But who is responsible? Who made this man this way? Surely he wasn't meant to be blind. That wasn't the plan originally. He suffered so much because of it. Surely he did something to deserve it, or his parents did, and it passed to him. It can't just be without reason or cause. Why did it happen? Why does any of this happen? Why is the world the way it is? John wanted to say all of this to Rabbi. 
He wanted to shout and scream his frustration. He wanted desperately to know the order of the world. He can't wrap his mind around the mystery of the rabbi's words. Rabbi breaks from his reverie and spits on the ground. The swiftness and crudeness of the movement startled John out of his exasperation. What in the world is Rabbi about to do? The other disciples look on with bemused curiosity. The only one more perplexed is the blind man. He's overheard the conversation and waits with trained patience, but he's not used to this kind of attention. He's been blind since birth. He knows he exists on the margins. He can't even see the indifference most people look at him with, but he knows it's there. Rabbi had been stirring his saliva into the dirt with his sandal. It has become mud. He scoops up some with his hand, looking at it, turning it over. He closes the distance to the blind man and covers his eyes with the mixture. Talk about uncomfortable. I mean, what's going through John's mind at this point? Just when you think you have the formula figured out, the rabbi spits in the ground and rubs the mud into a stranger's eye. I mean, do, do you take notes in that moment? Okay, so when I come across this situation in the future, I need to remember to rub saliva in the blind person's eye. And as if that's not enough, it's about to get even stranger. The blind man doesn't move or speak. It takes all his effort not to lash out. He's been a beggar his whole life. He is used to being the object of ridicule, but this, this is beyond outrageous. He's never had anyone rub their own spit in his eyes before. His hands clench and his jaw sets in clear fury. His anger boils to the surface, but before the man can do or say anything, he feels a gentle hand on his shoulder. Go, the voice says, wash in the pool of Siloam. His anger evaporates, his hands loosen. He's not sure why, but he trusts the man. Something about the voice, gentle, loving, kind. Suddenly he feels as if it's just him and the source of the voice standing in a field, gentle breeze caressing his face. His eyes flutter and he can make out the vague shape of a man. The light obscures his features, but the blind man knows it is the same one who has just told him to go wash in the pool. He looks around and sees grass, flower, clouds. He laughs and turns back to the man who nods and smiles. The blind man goes to hug him, but he's back in darkness. Without hesitation, he turns and hurries towards the pool, swiftness cooling the wetness of his cheeks. What's the deal with this pool? First of all, Siloam means scent. So I love that this man was sent to the pool called Scent by the one who was sent into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. Are we seeing a pattern here? Well, maybe a little background information will help. 700 years before this moment, during the reign of Hezekiah, the Israelites built this pool to have a supply of fresh water in the city. They did this to help protect Jerusalem in case a nation would try to surround them and cut off their resources. Which, of course, was a really good call because that's exactly what happened. And when the Assyrians tried to attack, they were unable to siege Jerusalem. But unfortunately, they couldn't continue to hold off the attacks. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians successfully sieged the city, and the Israelites were carried off to Babylon to live in exile. Well, a while later, Nehemiah and his team returned to restore the city, and when they did, the pool was a big part of that project. Now, since the pool was so close to the temple, it was used during the Feast of Tabernacles. I know this is all a bit technical, but stick with me because we're going somewhere. 
Every morning during the feast, a priest would draw water from the pool and bring it back to the temple, pouring it on the altar. That process was repeated on the first seven days of the feast, but not on the eighth and final day. So it was completed seven times, seven, the number of completion. But then there was an eighth day, a start of something new, day one of the next thing. John writes about that eighth day in his gospel. On the last and greatest day of the festival, day eight, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is great insight into what all these signs are pointing towards. Remember our theme of seven. Seven is the number of completion, and completion is the thing we're all really good at celebrating in Christianity. Because Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, it is finished. But the genius of John's gospel is that it won't let us stop there. Everything appears to be happening in sevens, but seven is actually setting the stage for number eight, the beginning of something new. Because although it was finished on the cross, the reality is it was just getting started. Jesus' death was the end of one thing and the beginning of something brand new. Resurrection, new life, a new world, a new reality. See, I'm convinced that by the end of his life, John was all about the eighth sign. Just like he tells the story of Jesus standing up on the eighth day of the feast, this whole thing is pointing towards what happens after the number of completion. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is only the sixth sign, and currently a very confused blind man is making his way to that very same pool. Because by the way, confusion always seems to come right before clarity, just like death always comes right before new life. The blind man knows the way to the pool. He's learned to navigate his quarter of the city with relative ease. This is helpful today because his mind is elsewhere. He knows he must look foolish hurrying through the streets with mud on his eyes. What else is new? He's felt foolish most of his life. Not because he was blind, however, but because the way others expected him to act as a blind man. He's always felt confined by the expectations of others. He can hear the familiar noises at the pool of Siloam. He feels his way to the steps that lead down to the water. He keeps one hand on the wall as he makes his way down. He can feel eyes on him. The people there weren't used to a blind man coming to the pool. He doesn't ask for help from anyone. How would I explain what I'm doing? He feels for the water. The stone has been warmed by the sun. It all feels the same. Suddenly his feet hit something cool. He dips his toes into the water. He throws himself on all fours and begins to splash water on his face. He's not sure what will happen next. At least he'll have a strange man's spit out of his eyes. He rubs his hands on his face to clear the remnants of mud and water from his eyes. He sighs in relief and turns his face toward the water. He sees a man looking back at him out of the water. How did he get there? Then he realizes what has happened. His heart stops. The whole world stops. He pushes up to his knees and look around. Color floods his eyes. Light rushes in. His eyes strain from the effort. He holds his hands up in front of his face and turns them. 
He looks down back at the water and stares at his reflection. He can see. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Jesus once asked his disciples that question when they were trying to take his words too literally. And if I had the opportunity to be with Jesus during this time, I'm sure he would have said the same thing to me over and over again. Because with Jesus, there is always more going on than what meets the eye. And in this story, that is quite literally true. Jesus could have just healed the man. Instead, he spits in the dirt, rubs the mud in his eyes, and then charges him to go wash himself in the pool that points to his own resurrection. So let's start putting all of this together. How many times have you gone through a really difficult season where nothing seems to make sense, only to come out the other side better, stronger, and more thankful for your life than ever? In the midst of the storm, it's like we had eyes but couldn't see, but from the other side, it's as if our eyes are open. We can see and understand everything that was happening. Jesus just always saw the bigger picture and he was and is constantly inviting us to do the same. But it's a process, it takes time, and that's okay. Actually, I think it's kind of the entire point because that encourages us to abide in him. Abide as we learn to see the bigger picture. The sun nears the walls of the city on its daily journey. The soft colors of dusk mix with the closing night. A woman strolls to the nearest well to fetch water for the evening. She stops when she sees a man running up the street. She recognizes the man as her neighbor, but she must be mistaken. He is blind. He wouldn't be running. As he nears, she notices him look straight at her and waves. Her mouth opens in stunned amazement. He can see me? The man continues to run through the neighborhood, overwhelmed with joy. He shouts and leaps as he makes his way through the streets. He only knew them before by smell and touch. He stops suddenly. I can see, is all he can manage to utter. Others begin to gather around. The commotion draws even more. They are all amazed and incredulous. What, what happened? Who did this? I can't believe it. How is this possible? The man waves his arm to get their attention and settle them all down. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. He then told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went and washed and then I could see. But incredible, who is this Jesus? So, so then where is he? The man stopped. He hadn't even thought about where Jesus is, truthfully. He hadn't even thought about Jesus at all until this moment. He looked around, expecting him to be there, waiting to see the result of the miracle. But the rabbi and his followers were gone. I, I don't know. The crowd doesn't seem to care anymore. They continue to press him with questions. He answers, but he's not fully paying attention. He's trying to decide what he should do now, and more importantly, whether he will ever thank or even see the man who gave him life. In our sixth sign, John tells the story of a man who was literally blind, but who can now see. The clues are getting less subtle now. The signposts are pointing directly to the human experience. We can't see, and then at some point we can't. And with our new perspective, we keep moving forward. 
I mean, it would have looked really weird if the blind man received his sight but then asked for it to be taken away again, right? In fact, later in the chapter, religious leaders begin questioning this man who received his sight because it happened on the Sabbath. So a crazy, life-giving miracle just happened and the religious rulers want to drag it back to being about the rules. At some point in the conversation, the man who received his sight stops them and says this, Whether he, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He says, look, you guys can keep playing those silly games if you want. Jesus healed me. I can see, so I'm going to go on living my life, passing on the same love and grace I was just freely given to everybody else. I think the invitation is to not get so caught up in formulas. Instead, realize that life is complicated and every individual is a unique human being who needs and deserves our love and respect. So give it to them. As we all learn to do that, it will begin to feel like our eyes are being opened to things we used to not notice. Almost as if we were once blind, but now can see. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about our project at storiesinscripture.com, follow us on Twitter at SIS Project, or follow us on Instagram at Stories in Scripture.